0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is... NC Tomato Man, Craig here. Good morning, Craig. Good morning, Daryl. Uh, fr- fresh ble- fr-
2: freshly back from a week in Florida, so uh, from 75 degrees to 35 degrees, but I'm thawed out enough so that we can do this.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Your teeth aren't chattering anymore, huh?
2: Nope, nope.
1: Oh, well, that's good. What You got in really late last night, too,
2: didn't Yeah. You? Well, it was nasty we left, cold. Uh, Left the beach house in 75 degrees at about noon and arrived in our house in Raleigh at around 11:30. So uh, yeah, day, you know, travel days are always long days, no matter where you go, it seems. But there's, as they say in "The Wizard of Oz, there is no
1: place like home. Gotcha there, for sure. Now, for folks that don't know you, you are the author of my favorite book for the year it came out, and probably my favorite gardening book since then, too, and one of my top two ever. And that book is called Epic Tomatoes. And I urge you, if you are a tomato lover, folks, if you don't have this book, go and get it. You won't be disappointed. And, Craig, you've written on other subjects, too. You've got... um, You've done one on straw bale gardening. And yes, you got another, do you have another one in the works now?
2: Yeah, so Growing Vegetables and Straw Bales came out very early last year, and it's a little um, story how-to guide with pretty much just the basics of getting you into that technique. I am now working on uh, what I expect is going to be a self-published book on our dwarf tomato breeding project, which I hope, hope we can get into today because more companies now are – offering them and we've got more available and I think it's such a unique project that it's a story that deserves to be told and then a few future projects with story and another publisher on other topics so if all goes well I'm going to be doing a lot of writing for books three four and five over the next uh, year or two
1: wow I don't know how you're going to write and garden. And speaking about gardening, <laughs> um, you are the tomato person. And so what happened last year? You had um, you did two crops last year, did you? Yeah.
2: It's uh, because I did so much breeding of new varieties for our dwarf project and because we had a set of uh, dwarfs that I planted early on that just didn't do well. Um, I did a blog last year on weather and how you can associate the weather we're seeing with the garden experience. And we just had the type of weather that meant some of the really important plants I wanted to grow failed before they gave fruit, so I did some cuttings. But instead of doing a succession planting and layering things, planting something each week for a month or so, I did a whole second planting in midsummer thinking, it's a long growing season in Raleigh, I'll be able to ripen things off these 75 plants or so. Then I found something that I think most tomato growers will find, that when the angle of the sun starts starts to drop, when the nights become cooler, it lengthens the ripening time of tomatoes and it mm-hmm. slows their growth. So even though I managed to pick fruit off almost all of the plants, in many, many cases they were fully grown but still green fruit that were ripened indoors so rather than do a complete replanting of a tomato crop in in midsummer say a month or a month and a half past the initial crop i'm thinking this year of maybe doing a planting and then waiting a week doing planting a few more waiting a week or two and then just layering them like that and then at a certain point i'm not going to plant anymore because the The weather, the sun angle, the nighttime temperatures it won 't be worth the effort um, that to put into maintaining those plants because you 're just not going to get the tomato quality at the end of the at the end of the year
1: and that 's the reason i don 't grow tomatoes in the greenhouse in the winter time, even though I could because mm-hmm. they just don 't mm-hmm. taste like much when they don 't get the amount of sun that creates the sugars that helps create the flavors um, to, to do good fruit, but you were you were able to save seeds from those second crop, weren't you? That was absolutely.
2: A I had um, I had a garage table full of fully when the, when the green fruit become fully sized but just haven't ripened yet. You just bring them in and over over the time that they wish and tomatoes ripen pretty well when they want to. Uh, I help them along often by putting a banana or an apple in amongst them, which would then give off ethylene. And help hasten the ripening, but I did get to see ripe colors and good seed from those. Um, I did not taste them because the thought of tasting some of these fruits that were picked green and then took maybe a month or two to ripen, I don't. I didn't think that I would get anything really useful or distinctive off the taste. So I'm going to wait and uh, regrow some of those this spring to get a better sense on on what their potential is
1: i 'm surprised that you didn 't taste them even a little because I found that some tomatoes when they ripen, even if they 're ripened indoors, have have some amazing amazing flavors it 's not the not the sugary kind of tomato flavor, but some of them aren 't flat they have so many volatiles. That developed that you can get an idea, hey, this has got to be a spectacular fruit. Um, yeah, I I think think Cherokee Purple was the first one I discovered that with. Because, of course, it was fairly late, and it was, I had planted it late. I got the seed, I think, from Chuck Wyatt, who had gotten it from you. Uh And, um, And so, uh, of course, I wanted to taste it, even though it was late. I think it was maybe late October. Sorry for those of you up north, but we we have a long (laughs) gardening season here. Um, Late October, maybe even the first week of November. But it was right before frost, and I just picked them, and I let them ripen indoors. And I was surprised.
2: Oh, no doubt. And the reason I really didn't make an effort to taste these were a lot of them were new hybrids. And it's really... When you cross two tomatoes, especially when you're, you're breeding for a particular characteristic like our dwarf, dwarf growth, the flavor that you get in the hybrid is often not very good. And even more important, it's often not all of that indicative of what you're going to get in the offspring. So I figured, well, what the heck, we'll just wait. And some of our absolute best-flavored dwarfs came from crosses that produced hybrids that were almost spitters. They were not very good at all. And some of our hybrids that led to really good-flavored F1s, we haven't been able to find any of the good flavor in the offspring. And that one of the things we've learned in our project is that breeding for color and shape and size and plant habit is relatively straightforward because you can see them, but you can't see flavor. And it's, uh, that takes a lot of um, growing different selections and sampling, and uh, it's just a whole different set of genes that, segregates in your population a different way. makes it fun. It's always like finding a needle in a haystack when you do these projects.
1: So if somebody has tried saving seed and that they have crossed and it doesn't taste good in the first generation afterwards, don't give up on it? Is that the moral Absolutely. story there?
2: Yeah, because there's so many different flavor genes, and the only thing that's going to grow in the show in the hybrid is the combination of the dominant traits. And a lot of times it's what's expressed in the recessive traits that make the tomatoes particularly interesting. So they'll those are the things that will pop out if you save seed and then grow a range of your second generation. You'll see lots of variability in flavor in that generation. Um you know, uh, we we put sixty eight tomatoes on the market and I still think that my biggest disappointment in the project is that all of us who participated didn't have acres and acres and acres to completely find everything that was possible there. Um, because we've left, we've certainly left a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor. But we can always go back and, and search for more in the future. Um, you know, you, we can only fit what we can fit. Each one of us, we have a finite amount of space in our garden.
1: Yeah, that's always unfortunate for a gardener. <laughs> um, it would be nice if we had acres Yep. Well, it would have been nice to have acres when I was thirty. I don't know about my <laughs> yeah. age now.
2: I agree um, with you. I'm re- I'm ready for a small driveway. The the thought of. uh Handling acres right now doesn't do much for my knees or my shoulders.
1: (laughs) No, no, except that once you get them up in big, tall cages, you don't have to do a lot of bending. uh, Except to pick off disease leaves and and stuff like that and watch for problems. But, yeah, I I like growing in containers in my driveway. It's up. I don't have to bend so much. Um, What I am going to do, though, this year is go back to my container drip setup. If... Um, I, the watering was just brutal. My poor husband yeah. ended up doing most of it for me because I couldn't tolerate the heat we had this year. You know, because yeah. it's not just the ambient temperature, which was in the nineties just about every day, plus the high yeah. humidity. But then you've got the the uh, reflected heat off the driveway.
2: Oh yeah! Oh yeah!
1: <laughs> you can fry the soles of your shoes right, right on there when you're out watering.
2: Yeah, my wife's always amazed. Uh, she's the one who, Susan is the one who's quilting in her nice, cool bonus room and uh, looking out the window and wondering how I can be spending three or four hours a day outside in this. And it, it's just the passion of a hobby makes you do some extraordinary things sometimes.
1: <laughs> it, it, it does. It does. Um, I think we're all nuts, personally. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but it, But we have fun being nuts, so why not do it? Well, then being a nut means you put
2: some, you know, Sue could say, how can you be out there? But she's never said, when I start slicing Lillian's yellows and Cherokee purples for dinner, she, she's like, boy, am I glad you're a nut. <laughs> I'm glad that we have these to eat for dinner. So, um, there, yes, there are many benefits for our obsessions, for sure.
1: Yeah. Now, we've got a couple of minutes before the break, but I wanted you mentioned that you have 68 varieties of dwarfs out there now. Mm-hmm. Where can people get these? I'm going to have you repeat this later. Um. Sure. Yeah, well, the first four
2: companies that dove in in a big way are, are Victory Seeds out in Oregon, Tatiana's Tomato Base in um, Pacific Northwest of Canada, Heritage Seed Market out in California, and Remy's uh, Sample Seed Shop in New York. And we're really excited that over the last few months we've noticed that restoration seeds and fruition seeds are the next two companies to to jump in in a big way um and it's interesting in a way i guess i'm a parent of a lot of these babies Mm -hmm. so i've got 68 babies out there and in the process of applying and pledging all of these varieties in the open source seed initiative and uh OSSI, uh, we can put a link up, but this is a wonderful initiative that essentially keeps seeds free from being patented and owned and controlled. It means they're open-pollinated, they're available for everyone to, to grow and save seed from and share. But in trying to find out, one of the questions is, are these seeds available? So you start putting in the names of these dwarfs in Google, and you start saying, whoa, I used to think it was one or two companies selling these, now there's four, or five, or six. So this bottom up project that we took, this way that we did it, instead of the big splash from above and the news flashes, just to get them out there, it has been so exciting and just gratifying to see them as as kind of a grassroots thing that people hear about. And then there's word of mouth. And then you hear, Oh, people love the seedlings, they love the way they looked and I've been sending so many um seeds this spring to gardening groups, one of which is on Cape Cod, people that are starting to raise plants for fundraisers, a lot of the people are container gardeners. So we're really fulfilling that niche of getting something into a gardener's hands that they can grow more easily in a container. So if I sound like I'm a little bit happy about how this project's gone, um, <laughs> it's probably an understatement. It's, it's so far exceed our expectations, Daryl.
1: Okay. Well, we have to take a little break, so we'll give you a little chance to come down off of the moon for a few minutes, and then we'll be right back after this.
0: Quick States. That's
3: Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're
0: listening to America's Webradio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is Craig Lahuyer author of Epic Tomatoes, and a book on straw bale gardening. And here, right before the break, we were talking about how many new people, new companies are starting to sell the dwarf tomatoes. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the Dwarf Tomato Project. We have, of course, talked about it before. And, and Craig, can you give me a, a, a nickel tour of the Dwarf Tomato Project
2: yeah, um, started in 2005 with an idea that since more people are gardening and to get more people to continue to garden, we need to find plants that aren't as out of control as most of the heirlooms, which are the indeterminate types that just grow up and out and all around. So we thought uh, there are a very, very few of these genetic shorter varieties called dwarfs, which have other characteristics, such as really nice dark green, crinkly foliage, just beautiful plants. But no one did much improvement of them, and there had only been a few known since the 1800s. So my friend Petrina in Australia and I did some crosses, assembled a team, and we've now had 320 people involved the world over. Um, And through our work, um, and the goal was to, once we finished a new dwarf variety, it would not be a hybrid. It would be open-pollinated. It would be out to the 8th to the 10th generation of stability so that people could save seeds from it and regrow it. And we worked on flavor and color range and decent-sized fruit initially. And our first 68 varieties, which started coming into the market in 2010, and as of offerings uh, this spring will be up to 68 types, We've got all a rainbow of colors in lots of different sizes, and uh, the first four companies that went into them in a big way, Victory, Tatiana's Tomato Base, Heritage Seed Market, and Sample Seed Shop are now joined by Restoration Seeds, Fruition Seeds, and others. Southern Exposure are dipping their toe into the water a little bit, that wonderful company up in Virginia. And I think it's only going to spread with time, now, the, the project itself is turning its focus to colorful, tasty, dwarf-growing cherry tomatoes and sauce and paste tomatoes. So that is what we've got a lot of our volunteers working on now. Um, if people would like to jump in, uh, we're, we've downshifted it into a lower level of activity necessarily, number one, because we've got so much stuff out there, so the pressure's off a bit. But number two, because the time constraints, I just don't have the time to manage it that I used to, and because of some recent seed exchange laws, Australia is now cut off from being able to share seeds back and forth with us. So Petrina and the people in Australia and New Zealand are kind of going it alone and doing breeding work without passing it back and forth, and we're doing the same now. So... But people can email me just nctomatoman man at gmail.com and say they'd like to play along. And we've got no shortage of things to to investigate. And um, we're just adding, hoping to add people at a slower rate and see what we find this year. Um, there's still lots of stuff to to locate to fill in the gaps of what we want as dwarf plants with different fruit types. But it's been great, Daryl. I know you've grown a few. Joe Lample's grown a few. Um, gotten a few to Nikki, Jabor up in Canada. A lot of my customers from Seedlings love them. And, uh, you know, time will tell. The The court of public opinion will decide how many of these become true heirlooms. And in 50 years or 100 years, will people be still growing some of them? We'll see.
1: They will be missing out if they are not still growing them. (laughs) Folks, if you've never seen one of these dwarf tomato plants, and this isn't just a determinate plant that, you know, gets to be three, four feet tall and stops. These things have tree trunks for stems. They they will knock over in a heavy rain or heavy wind event because, you know, they they set quite large fruit. But they're very, very sturdy. They're very tough, very hard to kill. Uh, even when you have 100 degree temperatures that we had, and, and the drought that we had last year, um, and they taste good, and one of them in particular seems to have good, really good late blight resistant Rosella Purple. If you've had problems with late blight in your garden, you know that's one to give give a try to. And some some of them, you know, just as it, people have different tastes some people will like some tomatoes better than others um but i've found them generally is a group to be very tough and very tasty plants so yeah
2: and, and one of the things that we need to learn about um so whenever you put new varieties of anything out there they have been grown and primarily stabilized and developed in different areas of the country for example we have a few growers in Alaska who took a liking to a group of them that ripen fairly quickly. They're short-season varieties. I rod Red and Sweeping Lady, Yukon, Quest, Perth Pride, Arctic Grows. So they do very well for people out in Alaska. They come on really quick for me here in North Carolina, but they tend to be bothered a little bit by the extreme heat that we then get. And... I guess what I'm saying is what we haven't done yet is painted the picture of each one of these 68 dwarfs laid across the map of North America or even beyond, even into Europe, wherever they're growing them, and decided which ones really do well in which locations and which ones struggle. And then we we work in human preferences and tastes. Which ones do people like the best and which ones do they not care for as much? so these are all things that haven't been written about these dwarfs yet and you know we've got a simple survey up on my website and some of the other websites to try to start collecting data so we can start painting that picture so when somebody says calls me up and says craig i'm living in wyoming and hey, do you have a few dwarfs that would do well for me here it would be hard for me to answer that question right now because i just don't have that experience so um but that, that's the way it should be. We learn. We put tomatoes out, and then they grow, and different people grow them, and then we learn from those people, and we start seeing which ones will do well in different places. But that's fun as well, that, that gathering of knowledge, don't you think, Daryl?
1: I think so. And, you know, I'm with you on experimenting and gathering knowledge and finding out what works and what yeah. doesn't work. And speaking of finding out things, I had never heard of Victory Seeds before until you mentioned it. Um I guess probably the first show we did together when we talked about the Dwarf Tomato right. Project and where people could get these. And they are just amazingly cool people to work with. They are so easy. The shipping costs are low. Um, yep. They'll say something, well, I'm sorry, we might not get be able to get to it for a while, but then it'll be on your doorstep in three days anyway.
2: <laughs> yeah, and how Mike and I met, Mike Dunton and his wife Denise, uh, it, it is truly a small family company where... They do everything themselves. They grow everything themselves. What What's nice about that is they're also very responsive. So if, if somebody, like this year I was on a talk and uh, somebody handed me um, a tomato, and it was a family heirloom, and it's absolutely delicious. And so I will save seeds from that and find out if it's okay to share, send it to Mike. He can grow that and if he likes it, he'll save enough seed to have that on the market within a year or two. And it's so nice for gardeners who have these finds to have these smaller companies that are extremely responsive in turnaround time to be able to get some of these great new varieties out to the public quickly. Um, So that's another thing. Mike and I actually met through a shared love of Alexander Livingston's original varieties from the late 1800s and we kept bumping into each other on eBay and other places, and we realized that, uh, you know, um, divide and conquer now. Let's get together and do this together. So together we've been kind of searching for Livingston's and developing our expertise on it. And uh, his catalog actually offers an incredible treasure trove of information about probably the most important seedsman American seed companies has ever known, um, Alexander Livingston, who led to most of the tomato improvements between 1870 and 1920.
1: So Mike is an interesting guy. One of my my listeners knows uh, about Alexander (laughs) Livingston. Are you going to write a book Mm -hmm. about that? Some of the early Um, seeds, guys?
2: Yeah. Well, Livingston wrote his own book, and then Andrew Smith wrote a book about Livingston um, as well, featuring his tomatoes. But, you know, he... He was the person who did all of the improvements because the tomato from about 1850 to 1870 was kind of a big, ugly, lumpy red thing that didn't look or taste too good, and he's the one who learned about how tomato improvements should be made, and his catalogs carried all of these wonderful varieties like Golden Queen and Magnus and Favorite and Beauty. We can still grow a lot of them today, but they wouldn't look anything like the heirlooms that we love because they were going for smaller, canning, smooth, perfect-looking tomatoes, and we now go for the ugly tomatoes, because we, we know that they're going to taste really good. So history sometimes repeats itself and comes around big cycles.
1: Well, I, I find the whole history of tomatoes fascinating. I don't know enough about it, um, even though I've been growing heirlooms for, good Lord, um, I don't even want to think. It's back in the days when I had a huge garden and I, I could put all those those heirlooms in probably 30 years before heirlooms yeah. were cool anyway. But there's still, so yeah, well, the, I don't know.
2: Well, the Seed Savers Exchange got going in 1975 and started with just a few, a handful of varieties. So really, I joined Seed Savers in 86. And uh, Carolyn Mayle joined a few years later in 89. And she and I kind of joined right when the the heyday of the tomato was was exploding. Uh, it, there were just people were finding varieties left and right, and, uh, you know, Bill Minky probably best represents that now with his hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of varieties. Um, few are chosen. Talk about a needle in a haystack. So you look at a whole country of gardeners, and you never get more than maybe 10 or 20 that has this lust to grow everything they can get their hands on with any given crop. But, um... I think it's almost a natural mechanism to keep these things around. Um, you know, it's, people are just selected. You are going to be a tomato guy. You are going to be a watermelon person, and you're going to be a corn person. And then they get collected and maintained and saved. So somehow it all works, Daryl.
1: Well, I'm hoping that we can keep these again into the next century. And Now, do mm-hmm. you have any seeds from the dwarf tomato project? Do you have any of them in any of the... Um, vaults, like in Iceland or something? Yeah, that's a good question. I I know that um,
2: somebody contacted me a few years ago saying, Cherokee Purple is now in the Svalbard Seed Vault, but um, I don't know if the uh, dwarfs have made it in there yet. Um, That would be an interesting one. I'll have to see if I can send Carrie Fowler an email at some point, Mm. or or Amy Goldman, and see uh, what the plans are. I don't know the mechanism and the decision-making for getting seeds there um, and you know because the dwarfs aren't really yet heirlooms I, I kind of think of them as tomorrow's as heirlooms because they, they don't have enough age on them yet I don't at, at this point know what the seed saver exchange's policy is for maintaining varieties that are not the older family dwarfs so um, that's a good question but uh, that, that may be one to kind of poke into just to see how we can make sure that you know these have a place to be maintained as well.
1: Yeah, because yeah, you, you just never know. And I, I know we lost so many good tomato varieties from the turn of the century, and I would hate to have that happen again.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's uh yeah. There are a few we're still looking for. It, tomatoes are actually lucky because we found a lot that we thought were missing. But there are other crops that are, especially ones where you need to cross-pollinate between male and female yeah. flowers, where we've lost some. Yeah.
1: And And on that note, we need to take a little break, but we'll be right back after this.
3: Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare.
0: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. Today, my guest is Craig Lahulier and we are talking tomatoes. Now, right before the break, Craig, you mentioned some tomatoes that have been rescued. Which ones have you been involved in? I know about Cherokee Purple.
2: Yeah, and that, that was as much a oh god, that was as much serendipity as a rescue. I mean, to be to be sent this tomato with unique coloring and an interesting history that hasn't been named. Um, so I, I get to rescue name. And distribute um, I just got that was like the jackpot right three cherries on that one I got lucky so that was <laughs> gratifying but in the same right around the same time that people were sending me all these heirloom varieties that's when I discovered seed catalogs and that's when I discovered that the USDA has a database you can search and request seeds from and you know sometimes I think back what what is this interest in the older commercial varieties because now we tend to scorn commercial varieties. We go we go into a grocery store and if it's a hybrid or if it's piled up we, we don't want to eat it. But this is these are not hybrid. These are the seed companies between the eighteen hundreds and early nineteen hundreds didn't put hybrid seed on the market. They they would make a cross maybe or get a, a variety from a customer, make sure that it's stable and would repeat from, say, seed, and that's what would be on the market. And some of these wonderful old commercial varieties are just absolutely delicious. And uh, I guess the Livingstons that we found sitting in the USDA, like Magnus and Favorite and Golden Queen and Beauty, people had thought they were extinct, but Mike Dunton and I um, each individually were requesting samples and growing them out and finding that they exactly matched the catalog descriptions. And if you read Livingston's book, some of these have the most interesting stories, like Golden Queen, the very first yellow tomato that was widely sold in a a C catalog from the 1880s, he would go to state fairs, and if a farmer was distributing an interesting tomato, he would ask him for it. And so Golden Queen came from him getting a yellow tomato from a state fair and then coming back to his test gardens and growing out a whole bunch of them and then selecting for attributes that he wanted to end up with this really pretty four to six ounce canary yellow tomato that has a little bit of a pink blush on the bottom. So, um, you know, Winsall from the Henderson Company Mm -hmm. and uh, Abraham Lincoln, which was actually a famous 1923 variety from the the, uh, Buckby Seed Company on Rockford, Illinois. The problem with Abraham Lincoln is no one actually is growing the version, quote-unquote, of it, or the authentic Abraham Lincoln that matches the original catalog description, where it is supposed to be a one-pound red tomato on a plant that has bronzy-colored foliage, very un, very unusual wow. foliage color. Yeah, and any of the Abraham Lincoln you buy pretty much from anywhere now is either not the right fruit color, leaf shape. Um, so some of these tomatoes will, they used to call it running out, but the original seed source will get crossed to the point where it becomes impossible to be able to isolate what the intention was. And, uh, you know, all of these things, I could go on and on with the, the various varieties that we found. New Big Dwarf we found sitting in the USDA. And that ended up being the catalyst, one of the three catalysts for our Dwarf Tomato Breeding Project, because the company that developed that in the early 1900s crossed a small-fruited dwarf with the biggest tomato they found at the time and created this dwarf variety with large fruit. We read about that, and we thought, well, now we've got all these different colored heirlooms we can use as crossing partners. We can take this a whole lot further. So really what our project is doing is what a seed company did in the early 1900s, only we did it in a much more broad scale using much more diverse materials to create all of the different colored dwarfs. So the whole thing has been a lot of fun. And once you find one of these, the the desire is to get people to grow it. So save lots of seed, offer it through the Seed savers Exchange, find a company or companies that want to sell it in their catalog. And, you know, we've managed to get dozens of varieties that haven't been in catalogs maybe in decades back. And perhaps my grandfather or our grandparents or great-grandparents, these are the varieties that they have been growing in their garden that they ordered from their seed catalogs. That was what got me into this, is my love of gardening through my grandfather and a desire to find varieties that he may have grown in his gardens. So um, there there you have it. It's kind of the story of my my passion for the old commercial varieties.
1: That's pretty cool. (laughs) I also had grandparents, of course, that gardened, and my mother gardened. And so I grew up with a lot of these old varieties too, but I was not introduced to new big dwarf until, until it became popular again, yeah, was yeah. maybe to, I don't know 1995
2: or so, maybe 2000. Yeah, yeah.
1: I've forgotten. Um,
2: we got it out of the USDA, I think, in '94, yeah. and then uh, we grew it, and then get it into the Seed Savers Exchange, and. Uh, It's a really delicious tomato on that short plant, and the the quality of that tomato is what gave us the confidence that this project would be something we could really do well. So um, it's you know, inspiration comes from the strangest places.
1: It does indeed. Um, Now you mentioned Magnus. What is Magnus supposed to look like?
2: So Magnus, and it's been kind of yeah. Yeah. So Magnus is more of a. I don't know a, a, a romantic seeking than anything else. So when I when I first started getting to this the the commercial heirlooms, I'd go into antique shops and look for old sea catalogs. So I was at a, a um, chemistry conference up in New Hampshire, and they had a um, a nice antique shop in the town, of New Hampton. And I walked in, and right in the front on a on a rack was a Livingston catalog from 1900 that showed a round pink tomato growing on a potato leaf plant, and it was their feature tomato for that year, Magnus. So I bought the catalog. It was like $5, which is ridiculous. That catalog, today would cost so much more. (laughs) Um, But that was then, and this is now. And then um, I came home and started seeking that tomato. It wasn't listed in the Seed Savers Exchange. I couldn't find it anywhere. Um, Then I started playing around with different types of formats for searching the USDA database, and I found that it wouldn't find magnus, but it would find Livingston's magnus. There it was. Uh And so um, sent for seeds. They sent 100 because they said it was very old and it didn't germinate well. Um, I kept 50, sent 50 to Carolyn. We each got only a couple of plants to germinate. Only hers came out potato leaf. She got two, and she sent me a plant, and she grew one. So our two plants, we saved seed and got it into the Seedsayers Exchange. Our two plants were more than likely responsible for Magnus being available again, and it, and it should be a potato leaf plant with fruit that are in the 4 to 6 ounce range and unusual in being round and pink and quite sweet. So it is not a knock-your-socks-off heirloom. It is not anything near a brandy wine. But in, the, in 1900, it would have been considered a wonderful canning tomato for people that like pink tomatoes because there was, there's not a lot of blossom end rot or creases or cracks or wastes. It's just a little round pink tomato that in a tasting you'd look at it and you'd probably not even look at it a second time but that was what they were going for back then, kind of interesting.
1: Ah, that makes a lot of sense, why it tasted <laughs> yep. the way it did. I was expecting yeah. lush heirloom flavor when I grew it, nope. and and it wasn't. No, nope, it's more but of a canning a type of a tomato. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Meaty, oh. solid, um, mm-hmm. held up well in the canning process. Yeah, it's different. And, uh, you know, all of these, to, when the tomato first became really popular in the early 1900s, we gardened, to preserve, for the most part. Yeah. So I think people were even more concerned about putting as much stuff away as they could. So there was this drive for these small, round, smooth canning varieties so they could eat from the garden all winter.
1: Yep. Stuff it in a jar. Yeah. Give it a water bath process and go for it. Yeah, I remember yeah. eating lots and lots of stewed tomatoes when I was a little girl. Oh, oh
2: absolutely. But, you know, this brings an interesting point. So... You'd look at the catalog in the 1900s, and you'd have 20, 30, 40 tomatoes. They would all be mostly red, kind of medium-sized. Well, when the seed catalog started coming in, I sat down with a few of them, and I was astounded to find, for example, Totally Tomatoes has roughly 300 types. Tomato Grower Supply has roughly 250 types. Um, That's five times more than seed catalogs would have offered back in 1890, 1900, 1910. But then the daunting nature of the choice. So I counted 12 different general types of tomatoes now. You've got heirlooms. You've got the old ones, you know, the brandy wines. You've got newer ones that people are discovering even to these days. You've got new hybrids that have all kinds of disease tolerance worked into them. You've got the old standby hybrids like Better Boy and Celebrity. You've got breeders like Artisan, who is making uh, Fred Hempel, making these little, colorful, beautiful, interestingly shaped striped tomatoes that are a little bit larger than a cherry. Uh, Multiflora, plants that are putting out sprays of 100 flowers. You've got people crossing heirlooms and making hybrids that have heirloom characteristics such as Chef's Choice and heirloom marriage varieties, the indigos with the dark coloring, the wild boars uh, from Brad Gates in California with all the stripes, some more micro dwarfs like red robin with different colors, and of course then all of our dwarf project tomatoes. So, you know, it's for a gardener you've almost got to think about how do I even begin to sort out what to buy from that, what to grow from that. And you really need a strategy. You, need, you know, what is your interest level? Is is it seed saving? Is it canning? Is it variety? Is it yield? Um, there's never really been a more confusing time, Darrell, for a tomato grower to figure out what it is they want to put in their garden.
1: <laughs> well, it is confusing, especially since a lot of the seed catalogs don't have, and I should maybe say this because they're going to stay in business too, but a lot of them don't have really good descriptions. And I, I would just die sometimes if people would, if they would say whether it's a regular leaf or a potato leaf or maybe stick a picture in it like like Alexandra Livingston did showing a yeah, potato yeah. leaf. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it's so frustrating for me and my memory isn't as good as it was, once was. So my, my deal now is I always grow a couple of my favorites like Sun Gold mm-hmm. and Cherokee Purple and then yeah. I try something new. And every, last year, I kind of went overboard again on what was new, but uh, you know, mostly growing growing the the dwarfs that yeah. had come out, that, yeah. I guess last year and some from yeah. earlier. But that, and, uh, you know, I think I think some of the reasons for the lack
2: of descriptions. I've thought a lot about that, and I think you've got small companies like Victory that grow all of their own stuff and they know what it looks like and they can write good descriptions. But I think by necessity, some of the bigger companies must get seed from a central supplier, which means it doesn't matter what the catalog, the description is going to read the same. And, uh, and this, this isn't a knock on any company or any, it, there's different strokes for different stro- folks, but I really like f- for a company to sell a seed to have grown it and to be able to describe it. You know what I yeah. mean? To personalize mm-hmm. it instead of just this generic description that you can see in 15 different catalogs. Everybody listing that tomato is going to have exactly the same description. That's not too helpful for me.
1: Yeah, I agree, I, and I do like some of the smaller catalogs that put their heart into it. Um, and that I think that would be better for the industry in the long haul. But what do I know? I'm not a I'm not a corporate type. Anyway, we're going to have to take another break, but we'll be right back after this.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is Craig LaHulier, author of Epic Tomatoes, a book that if you like tomatoes, you have to have. I, I just can't say enough about it. But anyway, we're talking about tomatoes, obviously, and we're, let's devolve, let's go off into a little branch about what we're doing, what we're going to do differently this year than we did last year. And how we're going to change things around.
2: Sure, sure. Well, I'm going to interview you on this one. What are you going to do different, Daryl? What what are your garden plans for the year?
1: Uh, My main thing is to cut back, as usual. But that probably uh-huh. won 't happen, um, except that the gentleman that I grow for, who has a little um, c s a he does, he also wants to cut back, so maybe it won 't be so bad he He practically swallowed the catalog last year catalogs <laughs> plural <laughs> and and of course, since I had would sow a few extra seeds of this and that to make sure that he got enough for what he wanted, I had way too many plants, so i 'm cutting back on that. And I am going back to using a container drip system.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I, you know, I had one for years and years and years, and I used it and I used it and I used it, and it was so easy. Put it on a battery-operated timer. Um, mostly for me, it's just to remember to turn it off because I'm, I'm yes. bad about leaving water running. Um, and and get that container drip system going. Because especially for some of the cloth type woven, you know, woven polyester or whatever, um, grow bags, the the evaporation rate is huge. Yes. It was really difficult to to keep up with. Now, I had been going for a long time. I had been switching over to um, self-watering containers. And I think I'm going to get a few more. Mm-hmm. We've talked about them before about my favorites, and I'll probably put a link up um, to what I like. Of course, there's the Earthbox, and there's there are some others. So those are my two biggies. I'm going to make it easier for me. Yes. And easier for my poor husband, because when it was really hot and I couldn't go out because of the meds I was taking, he had to yeah. do the watering for me. And oh, yeah. You know, when it's over a hundred degrees, that's not that's not a comfortable thing to do.
2: No, 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 no.
1: So, what are you going to do?
2: Oh gosh, so- I don't know. No, I do know. <laughs> um, this now that we're back from Florida, it's this is my time of really planning. So, in terms of what I grow, on general terms, far less, further apart. Uh, and the far less is just because my time is, is going to be shorter this year than maybe any in, in a long time. So if I'm not going to be around to tend to things, then it just doesn't make a lot of sense to put it in. And, you know, there is cost to planting mix, and there's physical cost, there's financial cost. So I may, this may be a year where I do more surrogate gardening I've sent a lot of seeds out to people, um, finding out how different things are doing for them, asking them to send me pictures, a little sample of save seeds. Uh, the biggest thing for me is coming up with the strategy for our dwarf project because, because people on Tomatoville know that I'm, I'm downsizing it both in terms of my leadership and doing more um, delegation to different people to lead different bits of it mm-hmm. and by necessity going to be um, – less hands-on. But, you know, typically my weeks recently is a combination of um, sending seeds out to people and that it's never as easy as I'm going to go find the seeds and send them. It's where are the seeds, which ones am I going to send. Um, So nothing in gardening takes two seconds. You have to really think about it. Answering a lot of emails, and one of the most gratifying things about writing Epic Tomatoes was just the incredible... Number of tomato friends that I've now got all over the world, and uh, there's got to be five, six, ten emails a day from people where they're just we're just asking questions and having tomato discussions. Um, I need to really finish the book on the dwarf projects. Um, I I think it's really important to get that out. I'll be planting seeds in another two weeks, so I really do have to get a handle on that. So, really, wow, the other major is. And the other major thing is talks. Um, my, my speaking schedule starts in a couple of weeks, and it's pretty much every weekend between mid-February and mid-June. I'm going to be oh, somewhere.
1: Wow.
2: Yes. <laughs> so um, I'm excited about that. It's going to be great. I mean, getting to go to Dow up, up in Midland, Michigan, um, White Flower Farms up in Connecticut, uh, Pittsburgh Arboretum. I'll be in D.C. at the National Arboretum. These are, you know, just a few Huntsville, Alabama, working on Nashville, Tennessee. How fun! Um, and it's it's getting to be with people who share a passion for tomatoes like I do, which means we'll be learning from each other. So I will be a much, hopefully, smarter person at the end of this year, having gotten all these wonderful ideas from people, and I'll, I'll be sharing stuff with them. So I find it energizing and a little bit exhausting. <laughs> because it's travel um
1: but you yeah, know you've travel be careful these with, days is just yeah. never easy Even No, the you'd be, a tsa pass but yep, there's, there's always it's something true.
2: but but it's fun and uh you know i i think i've said before on your show i really have no idea where any of this is going i just feel like what i'm doing is what i'm supposed to be doing and it feels right um I do want to get my podcast up and running. There are other books I want to write. But really, it's just about, it's that it's that goal, getting people to love to garden and getting more and more people to garden, particularly younger people. Um, I just started working with Boy Scouts of America to talk about some of their gardening programs, <clears throat> maybe working with the Habitat for Humanity or maybe inner city gardens, but it's just... How can we get kids to understand gardening and then take that out to communities that are food deserts and and need food? All early stuff. But it's amazing some of the little conversations that I've been having that I could not have anticipated a few years ago. So I'm having fun.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that's the whole part about it. Whether you're speaking or whether um, whether you're in your garden, it's fun. It's supposed to be fun. If it isn't... You need to find something else to do, but it tickles me to find out that you're much busier now because I know when you started this dwarf tomato project you were still working full time <laughs> yes. yes, so it cracks yes. me up that you're you can, you, you're finding difficulty getting things done now
2: yeah so I, that's, that's you know that's a really good point we we conceived of this in two thousand and five the dwarf project, and we were chatting on garden web and garden web is a You know, I haven't been on that website in a long time, but it was kind of one of the major, I think that and Dave's Garden were two of the main um, gardening discussion groups of its time. Tomatoville then actually grew out of the need to create a place that was just for tomatoes that had a slightly more useful format for ongoing discussions. So, but yeah, I was still two years into my corporate life, finding time to have a huge garden, and then just start this project. And I retired from the corporate world completely, not consulting or anything, I think, in 2011. But then story came calling and said, hey, it's time to write a book, and then it's time to write a second book. And then everything has kind of taken on a life of its own. Um and as my wife says, I, this is my job now, and I should be busy at it, but she sees me spending more hours per day with a bigger smile on my face doing this job than my last job. So, um, you know, a total different magnitude of income, but a total different magnitude times a 1,000 of happiness, which means the math is tilted in the right direction.
1: <laughs> For sure. Now, are you going to do anything different? I know that you were using grow bags. This is going back to what we were talking about yeah, before. Yeah. Um, are you still going to use grow bags, or are you going to invent, uh, investigate another growing system like the self-watering planters?
2: You know, it's a good question. And for this year, because I'm going to have a little bit, of, uh, not as much time, there, there's lots of things I'd like to get into, because one of the things I was going to mention when we talked about the dwarf project as we focused on flavor and color there's the whole thing about disease resistance and so where I can see dwarfs going next once we've got our varieties in is starting to breed some better disease tolerance into some and seeing how some of them may do with grafts because when I discussed all of the different categories of tomatoes I'm seeing in sea catalogs the one word I didn't say is grafting because that's another whole kettle of fish on top of that so I've not grafted yet. I've not explored diseases yet. I've not done drip irrigation yet. So these are all, I see, future projects that I would then be getting into. Um, green. I, I need to learn much more about greenhouse growing, um, undercover growing, growing under tents. I know very little about hydroponics. So it's almost like... Um, You have to start somewhere. Then you start peeling the onion, and you realize how many different layers there are to gardening. And you you can get really deep and develop an expertise into one area, but then you come up for air and you decide, well, I don't feel complete yet. I I can answer this question and I can answer that question, but I'm starting to get questions about other growing methods and other growing techniques. And to be able to answer those, that means I want to learn about that too. So um, for this year, maybe a few bales. Um, a few grow bags or containers, I want to grow some of my mainstays for flavor, like Cherokee Purple, in 10 or 15-gallon containers because last year's little fives to just get some seeds out, it gave, it, it gave me what I wanted to do. But it didn't give us the yield we want. We didn't can any tomatoes last year, Darrell, and that, that's a sad oh thing my. indeed when you don't have enough tomatoes to can. So yeah, yeah, do a and that's where
1: well, we were growing. last year yeah. too because it was so hot for so long that fruit didn't set until really late in the season. Right. So right. we didn't get that big flush um, that we would normally get early midsummer. Yeah.
2: Well, I would other urge things I'd like you. To try. I'd also I, like I'm to try. Pro- huh? Go ahead. No, I'd, uh, li- I'd do- like to try doing a little foliage thinning of my dwarfs and really separating them out because I'm trying to pack so much stuff in, some of my diseases are coming from just lack of flow, uh, So yeah. there are some tweaks that I need to make, um, a few less plants but maybe a little better success.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're right. That sometimes fewer plants does make more for success because you're not you know, if you're not bumping against them and carrying disease from one plant or another or it's not blowing over, you get some extra air circulation so they dry off. Um, yep, yep, which yep. I know people in the north and west we're probably laughing about but down here it's a real problem when we get afternoon rains and then the foliage stays wet until the middle of the day anyway real quick what's your website
2: uh pretty easy it's just www.craiglahulier.com dot rcom and that's kind of the one-stop shop for everything um email me at nctomatoman all one word at gmail.com and uh I get back to
1: everybody the day they send it. You are amazing in that regard. I I can't imagine how you do it without a secretary. Anyway, that is all the time we have for today. But as usual, Craig, there's so much more to talk about with tomatoes. So I would like to get you back um, maybe when you um, are finished this season and see how things did and 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 (laughs) Why? I guess that's all we have time for today. Thank you one so of my much. Fav- you're
2: yeah, one of my favorite tomato friends, Daryl. Thanks so much.
1: Oh,
0: you're welcome. <laughs> we'll see ya. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.